invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 32, Psalm number 32. We have some Bibles that are marked at Psalm 32 for you. As these brothers make their way to the back, if you need a Bible, just get their attention. They'll get one of those to you. It's our gift to you as well. Keep that Bible. Psalm 32. Today we continue our series titled, What's God Got to Do With It? Having had a break last week because our worship service last Sunday was devoted entirely to the observance of the Lord's table, communion. So I remind you of what I said two weeks ago. Our spiritual health determines the quality of our experience in every other area of life. Our work, our physical well-being, our finances, our relationships may well be trying because in a fallen world we face trials of many kinds, the Bible says. And how we react to those situations will affect how we experience them. Our reactions make everything either better or worse. If we react sinfully, becoming angry or resentful or bitter or despondent, or a long litany of other harmful responses, then God's good purpose in allowing those things that have been done to us will not be achieved. There's not only what's been done to us, but there's what we've done ourselves. Which, if it's not dealt with properly, can have long-term negative effects on us. That is, when we sin, if we fail to deal with it as God instructs, we will carry around the guilt long after the root sin has been committed. As we engage in the residual sins of hiding and denying and worse, seeking to paper it over by our own efforts rather than God's remedy. So I said two weeks ago, friends, your past, if not put in the past, will affect you in the present. If you don't deal with your past, it will deal with you. And I encounter many people who are carrying around spiritual baggage from past experiences and sins, all because they've not processed those as God graciously offers and instructs for us. Our past does not have to control our present. It's not inevitable that I'll have to live my life with all of the effects of what I've done or even what's been done to me. The consequences of both my sin and of being sinned against can be mitigated by following God's prescription for both of those. In Psalm number 32, we have the testimony of King David, who sinned willingly and defiantly, and he suffered the personal consequences. And yet his story starts with the words of verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. So there is this blessing that David is writing of even though he had sinned grievously before the Lord. But in order to have this blessing, that blessing is, I said two weeks ago, the glad state of being in proper relationship with God. In order to have that, we're going to have to be people who deal with anything that would hinder it. And David, who wrote Psalm 32, can only speak of this blessedness personally because he dealt with his own past properly and then he was blessed as a result. 
We saw two weeks ago in the grayed out portion of the message outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take a look at it. And the top portion is grayed out because that's what we covered last week. We saw that our sin affects us. Psalm 32 is a report from King David regarding what happened with him after he sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba, fathering a child as a result, and then seeking to cover it up, ultimately orchestrating the death of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And one further consequence of all of that was the child that David had with Bathsheba died. But still David would not come clean. Verse 3 says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He finally did confess in verse 5. But then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now that, friends, is what resulted in the blessed state that he describes in verses 1 and 2. But David went at least a year before doing that. He had tried to cover it up, and then he tried to forget it. But God graciously graciously would not allow that, because he does not allow his children to wander without chasing them down. When David did confess and deal with his sin, as recorded in Psalm 51, he says that he sought the privilege of being a lesson to others. In the confession that he made that's recorded in Psalm 51, he made a promise saying this, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. And Psalm 32 is David making good on that promise to teach transgressors the way of the Lord and thereby seek to turn them back to the Lord. So David wrote Psalm 32 for you and me. And he teaches us what he learned in his circumstance. Namely, the other portions that you have grayed out in your outline. That what we've done affects us. He says, when I kept silent in verse 3, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. David testifies that one reason we don't experience the joy of forgiveness is because of the way we handle sin. If we're silent about our sin, then we'll suffer psychologically and physically. Sin has psychosomatic effects. Now, this does not mean that all suffering that we experience is the result of personal sin. If bad things are happening in your life, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's something that you've done such that there's a cause, a direct cause and effect between those. But often our suffering is due to our guilty past or to our sinful response to the sin of others against us. And the blessed person is, according to the end of verse 2, the person in whom there's no deceit. That is... This blessedness is reserved for the person who comes clean about their sin, as David did in verse 5, as we've seen. As a result, David had a clean conscience, and he had a restored intimacy in his relationship with God. In other words, he was blessed. So we saw that what we've done affects us, and, as you see there, what's been done to us affects us. 
If we carry around what we've done or what's been done, failing to process it biblically, it will affect us. What we've done affects us. What's been done to us affects us. And how we respond affects us. We must respond to it, we saw, and we must respond to it biblically. And responding to it biblically, if it's our sin, means 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There is the forensic forgiveness that we receive when we come to Christ. And the moment we come to Christ, we have that forgiveness such that we are in God's family We have that forever and that will never change. But then there's a familial forgiveness, the ongoing forgiveness that we seek from God as part of the sanctification process. Now, note this, friends. Both what we've done and our sinful reaction to what's been done to us require the same solution, namely repentance. We repent of what, either what we've initiated or how we've responded to what others have initiated. And repentance can be done. It can be done because of what we say in the outline. Major point number two. Our Savior delivers us. Our Savior delivers us. Today we want to see how the Lord delivers us from the spiritual consequences of sin, both our own and the sin that others commit against us. Let's pray now and ask God to help us. Father, we're here, as we have prayed earlier, because you have brought us here. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for this sacred moment now where our hearts are quieted, our Bibles are open before you, We ask you, Lord, to help us to clear our minds of distractions, cares that we brought in with us so that we can focus upon the truth of what you say. And so, Lord, that we can appropriate, we can apply these truths that you teach us in your word about how it is that the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, central to that gospel, delivers us from the effects of our sin, but also from the effects of what has been done to us in the past. Lord, we pray that you will help us to put our past where it belongs, in the past. Help us to process it in the way that you have instructed so that we can move forward in the present and in the future for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Savior delivers us. And that deliverance requires a depth that we'll try to explain because we are extremely complicated beings with mixed motivations in much of what we do. Because our motivations are mixed, it's often hard to see that underlying even good things, we can sometimes do those good things with a bad motivation. For example, take someone who's always busy, always the first one ready to volunteer to help others. They'll come and set up early. They'll stay late to clean up. You can always count on that person. Now, the motivation for that person may be completely and at least probably partially because they're just generous and caring. But it may be more. Or take the person who is very devoted to religious activity. They're always at church. They're always reading the Bible, always invoking spiritual terminology in their conversations. 
Now, of course, those are all very good things, but those too can be motivated by more than just love for God. They may be ways for us to cover for something or some things in the past. And that's why I say in the outline, our Savior delivers us from atoning for it. He delivers us from atoning for our past. From time to time, we hear prominent public officials resign from office because of some scandal. And then they always have the tearful news conference the next day. You all know what I'm talking about. And they say something like, in the past few days, I've begun to atone for my private failings. And we all know what they mean. Some guy is trying to make it up to his wife, trying to regain her trust, her love, though he's grievously and publicly abused that trust and love. But what we need to understand is that, strictly speaking, a person can never atone for his or her sins. You and I can never atone for sins. Do you know why? Because sin is never, never just against another person. It is always a sin against God. The word atone means to cover. And it's a word that's found in the Bible. For example, Romans 3.25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. The blood of Christ covers our sin, atones for our sin. Jesus covers our sin, all of it, past, present, and future. But even people who believe that can try to make up for it themselves. They can still be in the business of seeking to atone for their own sin. Now, to be sure, restitution should be made to those we've sinned against when possible. But there are things we do that cannot be paid back. And we could never pay enough back for the offense that we have made, an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. We can't make up for some things to others, and we can certainly never pay the debt we owe to God. But we sometimes try to assuage our guilt by our activity, even our religious activity. So I ask you, as you deal with your sinful past, whether in how you sinned or in how you sinfully responded to other sin against you, I ask you, do you believe that Jesus has fully covered it? That Jesus has fully atoned for it so that now you can have full salvation, or excuse me, full forgiveness in him? Do you believe that it is gone in the eyes of God? Because friends, hear this, you're compounding your sin by trying to cover Because you're failing to believe what the Bible says Jesus has done. Is there something that you have done that no one could ever know? You see, Jesus has covered it. But in the way we behave, very often we act as though we don't believe that. I've been confronted with this a number of times over the years. One of those was several years ago when I was in China. And I was in China to teach uh, underground Chinese house church leaders. They met at an island off of mainland China. And they were learning English there. So that was the main purpose for which they were there. But they had Bible teachers come in 
to teach them so they could go back and better shepherd their people. And I had a week with those brothers. It was a profound week for me. I've been able to do that more than once. And at the end of each night, uh, several of the young men would come to the apartment where I was staying. They had scheduled them to come and to give their testimony, for me to be able to hear their testimony through a translator. And I heard these marvelous testimonies. I heard testimonies of guys who are descendants of Hudson Taylor. Some of you know that he founded the China Inland Mission. So he was a pioneer missionary in China. Amazing testimonies, many of them having been persecuted. But there was one young man who, when he gave his testimony, he also asked for my help with something with which he was struggling. And so he shared something that he had done in his past, a sin that he had committed, that he simply could not get past. And he said to me, I ask forgiveness for this sin every day, multiple times a day. And I can't get past it. And I said to him, well, you need to confess. And he's probably thinking at that point, I'm glad we brought this genius over. I just told him. But I said, no, I don't mean confess that thing. I mean you need to confess the sin of unbelief. You see, you apparently don't believe Jesus has forgiven it. You've done it. You've brought it to him. You've brought it to the foot of the cross. The Bible says then that he forgives this. Now the question is, do you believe that and act like you believe that? And in his own way, this young man, by over and over asking forgiveness, he's trying some way to atone in addition to what Jesus has done. Now, China, the Chinese are in a shame culture. So that can complicate their ability to receive forgiveness. They have been shamed their entire lives. Anything that they do wrong, there's, there's multiple shame compounded around them. But we don't have a shame culture. But you may have a shamed heart that looks for acceptance, not in the atonement and resulting forgiveness of Christ, but in your own goodness, your own busyness, your own people-pleasing, your own perfectionism. All manner of actions and labels that amount to the same thing, self-atonement. Many people are doing what they do, even good things, at least in part, as a pursuit of self-atonement. David says in verse 1, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. The Bible quotes that very passage in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 4, in the context of an explanation of this marvelous biblical doctrine called justification. Justification is God, the righteous judge, declaring me, the guilty sinner, as being perfectly righteous in his holy eyes, even though I still sin. Justification is a declaration of righteousness given to the guilty sinner by God, the righteous judge. Now, why? On the basis of my good works, on the basis of my religious activity, on the basis of my generosity. No, it's on and only on the basis of the perfect life and substitutionary death of Christ for me. And that's why the hymn writer had it correct when he wrote, 
just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And yet another hymn that we sing, nothing can for sin atone. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So friend, are you atoning? Still trying to cover your sin? Do you believe Jesus has covered it? And if you are trying to atone, then that's evidence you do not. And you need to confess that unbelief. Second, he not only delivers us from atoning for it, he delivers us from hiding it. And we've been hiding it since the Garden of Eden. The innocence, the openness, and the transparency that we had with God before we sinned was symbolized by the fact that Adam and Eve, who represented us, were before God and each other naked and not ashamed. Now, notice how I said that, friends. I say the innocence, openness, transparency we had with God before we sinned was symbolized by the fact that Adam and Eve who represented us. I'm using that language on purpose so that you understand and I understand that even though Adam and Eve were the persons before God, those persons were representing you and me. To put it another way, they did what we would have done. Sometimes I've joked over the years that, you know, everybody, when they get to heaven, they say who they'd like to see first. We want to meet Jesus, Paul, Moses, just hear about these amazing accomplishments and exploits. And then I joke and say, you know, at first I want to get my hands on Adam. (laughs) Say, you know, what were you thinking? But the truth is, I'm joking because he did what I would have done. But as soon as they sinned, one of the many things that changed for them and for their progeny, for us, was this transparency. The Bible says this. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And when God called out to Adam asking, where are you? His answer was, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now notice the phrase, because I was naked. But the giveaway to the fact that this nakedness was not physical nakedness is found in the fact that before they even hid, the Bible says this, they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They were already covered. They covered themselves up as soon as they had sinned. They were not just physically naked, but they were morally ashamed, spiritually naked before God. And so now they're hiding from this God. No longer physically naked, but they still hid. Why? Because they were guilty. They were hiding their guilt. And we do that to this day. Fig leaves that we use in order to hide. To hide from God. We might indulge in order to forget it. Indulge in pleasure. Indulge in substances. Indulge in order to forget it. Sometimes erroneously called self-medicating the pain. This idea of self-medicating, you know, when you, when you use the word, what do you do medicine for? You do medicine for things that are not your fault, generally. 
you've been injured, you've come down with something, you take medicine. But see here, when we're talking about sin, we're talking about stuff that's our fault. We're talking about stuff that we've done. And we're talking about things that we are doing. So I would just caution us against using the psychobabble of the age by using terminology such as, such as that. People are indulging, yes, indulging in order to forget. But very often what we're forgetting and want to forget is our own guilt, our own sin. It's one fig leaf to indulge it. Another is to minimize it. And so when we have done something and done something again and again, we might say what I've heard a lot of times from people. Quote, I had a lapse in judgment. Notice the language, a lapse. This was just a momentary thing. I'm sure it's not going to happen again, even though it's happened over and over again. Or we minimize it by saying, I'm not perfect. Hey, listen, do, you all can do me a favor. You don't need to let me know you're not perfect. I read a book about you and me. I already know that. There's no newsflash there. That doesn't help anybody. All it does is it's a means in order for us to hide. It doesn't, the issue is not are we perfect? We know we're not perfect. The issue is what have we done? And are, willing, are we willing to deal with what we've done? Or... Another fig leaf. You've got the fig leaf of indulgence or minimization. You've got the fig leaf of deflection. Deflect it. I did it because. This person pushes my buttons. My wife is not treating me as I think she should at home. And so I found comfort in someone else. Friends, I've said this a number of times over the years. I I hope, I pray that you will allow it to sink deep into your mind and heart. Because Jesus has covered it, you don't have to cover. Because he has covered it, you can stop the games. You can stop atoning. You can stop hiding. Jesus has done it. Our Savior delivers us from trying to atone for it. He delivers us from having to hide it. And in your outline, He delivers us from denying it. People who've grown up in legalistic environments often have this problem of denial. You know what I mean by legalistic environments? That legal law works... And so your acceptance is based upon how well you keep the rules, how well you keep the law legalist. So people who've grown up in legalistic environments have this problem as they believe they have to perform in order to be accepted. So the relationships are always sort of on probation. Because the grade still is to come in, I still have to keep performing before I get Before I get the grade. And that's true. That approach is true in man-made religion. And man-made religion is everything except the biblical gospel. The acceptance comes after the performance. And that's why it's a miserable life to live. And that's why you can't enjoy the ride. Even if you believe you're going to heaven, you don't enjoy your time get between now and then. 
And for many who believe it's possible you can lose your salvation, you won't know whether you're going until the end until you get the final verdict. And that's all because in that view, the acceptance comes after the performance. If you believe that kind of gospel, and that's really a misnomer to call it a gospel because that is not good news, and the gospel is good news, If you believe that kind of thing, you'll be tempted to deny the reality of your sin, your culpability for it, the depth of the sin. Why? Because you have to be able to perform. You have to be able to measure up. Many in this situation perpetuate their denial by lying. I've been surprised over the years to encounter people who habitually lie and deceive And I find legalism in their background to be a common factor. Because they have to be perceived by others and by most of all themselves as better than they really are, even if that means lying to prop up the facade. How weird is that? But it just shows you how messed up we get when we don't put it at the foot of the cross. Or people have sinned in very obvious and ugly ways. They feel the need to deny Sometimes in religious terminology. They're still feeling the effects of that. They're still dealing with the effects of what they've done. Others are seeing the effects of what they've done. But they say things like, that's not who I am. I'm a new creation. Well, who could argue with that? I'm a new creation in Christ. That's not who, that's not who I am. That's true, but your past is still affecting you because you're denying it and so you're failing to deal with it. Rather than, friends, saying it's in the past, I don't know, I don't now need to deal with it. We should say this. Because Jesus has covered it, I now can deal with it. Not I don't need to deal with it, now I can deal with it. You know, follow Follow the words of that great theologian, Jimmy Buffett, who said in Margaritaville, some people say there's a woman to blame, but I know it's nobody's fault. And then he goes on. Some people say a little bit later in the song, there's a woman to blame, but I know it could be my fault. And when he gets to the end, Some people say there's a woman to blame, but I know. It's my own fault. You've got to get to the point where you are able to say, it's my fault, and I bring that fault, I bring that sin to Jesus so that I'm no longer denying it, which means I can confess it. You see, if you're denying it, you can't confess it because confess literally means in your Bible, say the same thing. That's what the word means, to say the same thing. So we say the same thing about our sin that God says about it. And you can do that. Now hear this carefully. You can do that. You can make that confession. You can stop denying it because in Jesus, hear this, the acceptance comes before the performance. That's the biblical gospel. You're accepted before you perform. And now what you do is in light of that acceptance. What I do is now in light of who I am in Christ. So our Savior delivers us from atoning for it, from hiding it, from denying it. And lastly, from floundering in it. Now I thought about using the word wallowing. But what I mean is, 
Jesus delivers you from having it affect you for the rest of your life, keeping you from being all that God desires for you, floundering, wallowing, not moving forward as a result of something in the past. Now, here I'm thinking primarily of sin that has been done against us and our need to process that so that we can move on. I said last week that for myself, as I thought about this, as I was doing this, putting the sermon together two weeks ago, I couldn't think in my own life of anything like that. I thought of I have happy memories for the most part of my upbringing, a mostly idyllic upbringing. But I've been reminded over the years that not all was rosy and often in some spectacular ways that I shared with you two weeks ago. And I said then that I think the reason that it does not readily come to mind is because it does not control me. And that's because God in his grace has allowed me to process it. Now, how? How do you how do you process what's been done to you by others? For myself, I didn't have a formal process of dealing with what happened and dealing with who did it, but rather quite unconsciously applied biblical truth that helped me move past it. Now, if that person is still in your life, then you still think about them and it, whatever it was. And you can't avoid that. If they're still in your life, then they are going to come to mind and then... Certainly from time to time, whatever they did is going to come to mind. The question is how you will think about them and it, not if you will, if they're still in your life. Your feelings will subside over time, but it will get better if you think about them better. So you need to begin thinking about the perpetrator of whatever they did, like I had to do, Properly. Now, let me provide some biblical principles that help us deal with wrongs done by others to us in the past. At the risk of sounding simplistic, but I'll take a few minutes to explain. The first and most important is this. If you're going to move past what someone has done to you, you've got to love that person. The Bible, does the Bible say love your enemies, right? So if I'm going to do that, I'm going to have to learn to love a person who has wronged me. What does that mean? What does love mean? Love means doing what is in the best interest of another person. If it's someone with whom you're not able to interact for whatever reasons, then it's wanting what's in the best interest of that other person. So ask yourself, do I want good for that person? And if we're honest about it, when people have done heinous things to us, we don't want good for them, do we? We want vengeance. We want evil upon them. Now, hear me. It's okay to hate what they have done. In fact, it may be quite right to hate what they've done if they've sinned against you. God himself hates injustice. So you will be glad to know if you have been treated Wrongly by someone in the past, God hates what that person did to you. Psalm number seven, God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day at unrighteousness, at 
injustice. But also, though, wanting what is best for others who are affected by that person. So we love our enemies. We want what is what is best for them. Even if we can't supply it, we want that. That's how God is changing our heart toward them. Nevertheless, they may need to see justice. We want to see justice done. Not vengeance, but justice. And hear this. They may have affected other people by what they did. And that justice being done to them may help those other people as well. So not wanting someone to get away with it can be good. That's justice. But hear this. It's for God and others to do, not a self-serving avenger, me or you to do. Vengeance is whose? Mine, says the Lord. So you love that person. You want what's best for them. That does not preclude desiring justice, particularly for the sake of others who may have been affected by what they've done. And until they are repentant, then seeing them prosper, it is okay for that to bother you because justice has not been done. But just understand this, friends, they will not prosper forever. And so when you see that happening and you say, I just can't look at that person anymore and just see them smiling and happy given what they've done to me. Understand that that will not go on forever. They will either repent or they will pay for what they have done in the future. God's justice guarantees that. So love the other person. Doesn't preclude seeing and wanting to see justice done, which is different than vengeance. Secondly, see them as Christ sees you. See that person as Christ sees you. And how does Christ see see you? How does Christ see me? You see, you look at what someone else has done and, and it's different than anything you've done or believe you would ever do. And that may be true. It may be something that you would never do. But when we differentiate sin for ourselves, friends, we err. We make a grave error when we do that. When we say, I would never do that. As if their that is worse than our particular sins. Hear this. All of us are unequally tempted. We're not all tempted with the same things. So we don't do the same things. We are unequally tempted, but depravity means we are equally capable. We are equally capable of any sin, all things being equal. But we're not equally tempted due to a number of things, personality factors, upbringing, all kinds of things. So you need to see that person as Christ sees you. And how does he see you? How does he see me? People who have rebelled against God Almighty. And it shows up in various ways, but all of it amounts to rebellion against an infinitely holy God. And what's the price of that rebellion? Eternal separation from God. And what's the only solution to that rebellion? It is the infinitely valuable blood of Christ on the cross on our behalf. So friends, we've got to process the past or it will have us in the present. Here's your take-home truth then. Christians can, and we must, live in the freedom 
of forgiveness. Live in the freedom of forgiveness. We're going to pray. And as we do over these two weeks, two weeks ago and now again today, as we've looked at these issues, although it can be very painful, I do hope that this has surfaced issues that many of us need to deal with. But that for reasons like I've laid out, we have been unwilling to, unwilling to deal with. And so now, friends, uh, as we pray, I'm urging you to take those things to the Lord Jesus Christ and to truly appropriate what he has done for us in the gospel. Truly believe that he has accepted us and that will never change and therefore he has accepted us before the performance and without regard to the performance. He justified us while we were still wicked, the Bible tells us. So I've been accepted in the beloved, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6 tells us. Tell the Lord when we pray that you believe that. And ask the Lord to forgive you for sinning by failing to believe that. Lord, I confess that I have not truly believed that you love me, that you accept me. And I've tried to cover that in my sin in so many ways, even in good ways. I ask you to forgive me. And now, Lord, grant me the freedom of serving you simply because of who you are, not because I'm trying to prove anything. Forgive me for being deceptive and lying about what I do. Lord, I ask you to help me to move on now from the past in the present to have the joy of the Lord so that in the future I can be used of you to bring glory to your name and for the good of your people. Let's bow together. Our Father, we are complicated people. I mean, just to put it bluntly, as sinners, we are hot messes. Just so many things going on in our hearts and in our minds that motivate us, and seek our allegiance and entangle themselves around, our, around us. And so that we do what we do, not for your glory, but for sin, things that, reasons that are sinfully tainted. Lord, help us to examine that. Help us to, to look at even the good things that we do to ensure that they are done out of a pure heart for you, having accepted the freedom that comes only through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, having covered our sin, past, present, and future. Indeed, Lord, help us to be people who hate what we have done, But help us to be people like the great apostle who, though he loathed himself at times for what he had done, who shall deliver me from the body of this death, O wretched man that I am? The things I want to do, I don't do. The very thing, the things I ought to do and I should not do, those are the very things I do. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, he wrote. And then he said immediately, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, our sin is loathsome. And when we remember it, we do hate it. Lord, help us to run to the cross with that. And because of the cross and because of its infinite value, help it to have practical effects on the way we behave and upon our, our attitudes. Help us, Lord, to do what we do simply out of gratitude to you, not because we're trying to prove anything. We can't. 
And Lord, if there are things that we need to get out, we need to go to a brother or sister. We need your help and your aid that have been plaguing us for years. Help us now to have the courage to do that. It's not what so many say. That's in the past. I don't have to deal with it. No, Christ has covered it. So now I can deal with it so that it doesn't plague me in the future. Oh, Lord, I pray that you'll do this work in the hearts and lives of your people so that we as your church will be able to put the past where it belongs in the past and move forward for you together. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.